It's all drama. We all know all about it. Yes. T.R. Knight leaves two seasons later. Yep. Catherine. Elvis. Okay. That's, can you get him? He just knocked over the mic. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Lainey. I'm the founder of LaineyGossip.com. I'm a talk show host in Canada and an entertainment reporter. And I'm not going to talk about BTS this week. I'm Duanna Taha. I am a television screenwriter and producer. Uh, My mom recently told me she doesn't listen to the podcast because of the language. So I'm confident in telling you I'm working on not giving a fuck. Well, uh, we do give a fuck, though about Dr. Alex Karev and specifically Justin Chambers. We'll be discussing on this episode his last episode on Grey's Anatomy and uh, getting into the writer's room in terms of how they arrived at where Alex ended. It's a lot more mathematic than you think. Plus, at one of your suggestions, we dig into Ali Wong's appearance on Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend She tells us some surprising stuff about her very specific work schedules and the things that she thinks Conan's doing wrong, and we dig into her work. We do give a fuck about work. This is Show Your Work. I interviewed a hero, like a personal hero, but... When I say personal, I mean personal probably for a billion people. Did you already know that when you were going to do the interview? Or is this one of those things where after you did the interview, you fell in platonic hero love? No, I knew. I didn't want to talk about it. Um, and I I was like, okay, cool, cool. This opportunity came up. It's Or he's going to be part of this opportunity. Cool, cool. But chose not to build it up in my head because, you know, I didn't want to jinx it. You know how I am about superstition. Well, my phrase is always, I never believe anything until I'm on the plane. But in a situation where you actually were on a plane, it's, it's even more of the minute than that, right? You never believe anything until you're actually sitting down with somebody and like tape is rolling. Even five minutes before I was like, Whatever. I could see his name on the door of the junket room and I was like, yeah, I don't know if this is going to happen. So let's back it up a little bit. You were away doing a movie junket, meaning interviewing up to a dozen people. Sometimes Mm -hmm. you go from room to room. We've talked about that. And I truly don't know the answer to this. So who was the hero? Jet Li. Wow. Right? Yeah. What is Jet Li like in a junket interview? He's uh, very polite. Um, he is, he's, he's engaging. He's happy to be there. 
So, but what do you do in that situation when it's somebody that you have built up so much in your mind? And I mean, you're doing a good job even now with me of pretending like it wasn't that big a deal, but obviously (laughs) that means it was built up so big in your mind. Yeah. Do you go in just straight earnest? Do you try for comedy? What was the... Straight earnest. Straight earnest. Okay. Um, It was a bow. Um, So happy to meet you. You're such... I mean... Like the day before I left for the junket, my parents came over and they're like, where are you going tomorrow? I said, oh, I'm spending the weekend in LA because I'm doing a junket. I'm doing the Milan junket. They were already like, you know, I, they never know what movie it is that I'm doing when I go for a junket. But this, of course, every Chinese person is raised on the legend of Mulan. Like everybody knows it. Right. It's a like a true story. They learn it in history class, all that, right? So they, first of all, were already kind of like, oh, that's the movie you're doing. And then I said, and Jet Li's supposed to be there. And that's when they were like, wow, Jet Li? Jet Li is a big fucking deal for Chinese people. Sure, absolutely. Um, And so, yeah, it was like super exciting. He... His English isn't great, so it's not like we had the most in-depth conversation, but what we talked about with respect to the movie and why he wanted to be a part of it, first of all, because his daughter was like, um, why are you declining this? Like, do you not have money? Or like, are you what? My favorites actually are when people say that. I love, I feel like there's an Emma Thompson one that I can think of. Maybe it was Harry Potter, but I like them across the board where people go, I kind of was maybe going to do this movie. And then my kids were like, are you fucking nuts? You have to do this. Um, Makes me really happy. Yeah. So that's basically what happened. And then he talked about why he wanted to do the movie, which of course is, what's interesting to me is that he became famous when he was pretty young because he was a martial arts genius, right? Mm -hmm. And cinematically very uh, appealing. Sure with his martial arts. And it's really interesting, the legendary performers, especially the male ones, Mm -hmm. it's not uncommon, so it is very common, for them to be one thing in their youth, and then as they get older, they get more, let's say, Confucian and Buddhist. And they... Can you, like, dumb that down for me? What do you mean? Like, they're a super hot rod, like... They're super hot rod, and they star in all kinds of movies that um, are about gangsters or, you know, have that that whole morality exploration that Chinese movies are known for. You know, a Chinese movie never has a happy ending, right? (laughs) I didn't, but I love that. I, that makes a lot of sense to me. Like a Chinese drama rarely, you know, The Departed was based on Infernal Affairs, which is a Hong Kong movie. Right. And the way The Departed ended and the way that Infernal Affairs ended is remarkably different. The way that Infernal Affairs ended is basically the bad guys don't get their comeuppance because that's real life. In real life, um, it isn't always a bow around a box and the good guys prevail. In real life, sometimes the bad guys prevail. And that is your classic Chinese, like, crime drama. Well, I feel like I have to interject for a second. I don't want you to forget what you were saying about they start as sort of hardcore legends and then become uh, Confucian, was your word. Yeah. But I am reminded of there is this 
a legendary, possibly apocryphal story. There's a woman who works as a kind of a coach for TV writers uh, who lives in the U.S. and who has worked with a lot of Canadians. And she tells this crazy to her story of uh, some Canadian telling her about having worked on or seen uh, a legendary Canadian, I think, TV movie where the girl who is uh, a horse jumper, I believe in this case, is working really hard. She has her setbacks. She has her determination. You know, the kind of movie I'm talking about. Uh, And in the end, she comes in second. Right. (laughs) And the woman was like, sorry, what are you talking about? At the end of that movie, they come in first. Right. And she's like, no, no, that's what Canada teaches you. Like that it's the journey, (laughs) not the destination. Like it's about, you know, coming in second doesn't deny your whatever, your effort. And this woman was like, excuse me. No, no, no. The point is you work hard, you come in first. Yeah. Anyway, I've always loved that story. I am happy to know that Chinese movies share the sentiment of, here's how it really goes down. Oftentimes it's about, you know, what you're taught is this fairy tale and then they hit you with the real life real fast. Okay. So then they become... So then, but then as they get older in their career, almost all of them, like the big time ones, at least of my generation, they become less interested in that kind of storytelling and it's all Confucian and Buddhism. And it's all Confucian and Buddhism. And um, I don't know what it is, if it's like reckoning with fame or money and they realize that all that money didn't make them super happy or they're atoning for maybe some mistakes or some compromises they had to make along the way. That's also a possibility. But he was very spiritual. Like he talked about his relationship to this film and why the Confucian values are uh, represented in the film. And, you know, of course, Mulan is you know, performing her duty, that's filial piety, mm-hmm. which is like the most basic Confucian principle um, uh, towards her family. Her dad, everybody knows the story, right? Her dad can't go to the war, yeah, so yeah. she pretends to be the boy. I say yeah, yeah, like I've seen it all the time. I only <laughs> know it because Disney introduced it to us right. some 20 years ago. So yes, to bring honor to the family, to, um, you know, represent the family, all of that. So that was his, like, that was his focus in talking about this. And he did it very passionately. And in my mind, I'm looking at him, I'm like, oh God, you're like, Romeo must die. (laughs) Right. But my question to you is, do you think that he told you this because he thought you would understand it? Like, is this kind of profiling in the most positive way? I don't know that he selected me for it. I, I think don't mean that you that, were his vessel. No, I just mean like... I think like, that that was his message. Right. Regardless of who walked in correct. the Correct. Got yeah. it. Okay. Anyway, but it was still really cool to see him because, um, yeah, he still... There was a, a while, like a couple of years ago, he was making headlines because his appearance had changed drastically and he's in his 50s, but he looked much older. Right. And... I am happy to say, or not happy to say, I mean, he looked like he was 90 in these pictures. And then on the internet, people freaked out, like, is that really Jet Li? But he looks totally Jet Li in his 50s now. He has grown his hair out. He even has like a jaunty little perm. Right. Like his hair is wavy. Um, 
And it was great. It was just great. I, it was one of those moments where I was like, oh my God, I like, this is wild what's happened in my career that I'm sitting across from Jet Li, who I used to watch all Jet Li movies and we all used to freak out over Jet Li. So it's funny that you say this about a hero, because as you say, like you can't go around kind of gunning for these things. You just uh, appreciate them when they come up, right? But I've been thinking while you were talking about like who is the person who still would, not that tons of people wouldn't be amazing to sit down and speak to, but somebody who means the same amount to me as they did when I was a tiny, small child. And um, I still haven't met this person. I haven't spoken to this person. And even thinking about it, I'm still not sure I could keep my shit together if I did. You're like already like grabbing your the collar of your shirt right now and like kind of about to fangirl. Yeah, I'm a bit flirty and a bit fidgety. Right. Um, but there's a reason why. Um, my number one still to this day, I can't believe she's not everybody's number one, is Judy Bloom. Mm-hmm. And I think I would cry. I know I would cry. Um, but there are two Judy Bloom projects in the works right now. They finally sold the rights to Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Oh, my God. And, and there is a green light on an adaptation, a TV adaptation of Summer Sisters. Yeah. And so I kind of go, oh, my God. There's, like, more possibility. Judy Bloom is 80 it's very, or 82 maybe, it's very possible that she, you know, after the last book would be like, you know what, I'm just going to kind of chill in Key West. But she's back out. She's back around. She's making more rounds. It could happen. We could have her on the podcast. (laughs) I can't imagine how much more neurotic you would be. Look, I, you love to say we're thirsty. I love to pretend I'm not. If there's anybody listening who has any powers to get Judy Bloom into our ears, nobody will do an interview that's more thorough, that is more comprehensive, that asks questions she's never been asked. I feel like that's also what you were able to present to a Jet Li. I'm just saying it's uh, it's a big prospect. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need a minute to sip water over here. You guide us into the next All thing. All right. Well, I love that we somehow – connected Jet Li with Judy Bloom. Who else? I bet they Not both would appreciate it. Not to credit ourselves. <laughs> I bet they would appreciate it. Not to start off this episode by sucking our own dicks, but why not? We just connected Jet Li and Judy Bloom. Wasn't there. even a stretch. Let that be. Let that take us into the rest of the discussion. So our first story today is one that's kind of been cooking around. And I think you and I both knew that we might want to address it, but we didn't know how and why for a while. Yeah. And so what we've been talking about is the exit of Justin Chambers mm-hmm. and or Alex Karev on Grey's Anatomy. That's right. So it was a few weeks ago where it was very sudden and the reports came out Justin Chambers is leaving Grey's Anatomy after what, 16 seasons? It was it is in its 16th season. After and he was in the first season. He, oh uh, oh yes, yes. So, he was and he hasn't been off since. That's right. Um and it was abrupt. Um it was he's already shot the last episode, he's gone. That's right. Even though 
the 16th season has not yet wrapped. I mean, I believe they're probably wrapping up the final episodes right now. Yeah, they're probably close right now. Yeah, and they those, like, the season finale will air in May during sweeps, right? As usual. Yeah. But in January, when the news came out, he was done. He was out mid-season. That's right. They didn't even stretch it out to sweeps. No, that's right. And so... Uh, that was the revelation about Justin Chambers. Mm-hmm. And then this past week, uh, the episode that was the final episode of Alex Karev, the character, aired. That's right. And so the reason I keep making those distinctions is because I think that's where this discussion is going to live, is that an actor and their departure is one thing. We can talk about that. But then a character's departure is something else mm-hmm. again. Um, so... Are you going to talk about the text I sent you? Uh, yeah. So, but maybe we should begin with the actor. Yeah. Let's start there because it was, I mean, the initial reaction was gossipy in the sense of, is there, given the history too of this show, right? I mean, this show has been known for, like, when people leave, it has been under controversial or at least testy circumstances, multiple times. Let's name them. Well, I. it's interesting that you say that because what I was going to say is when the originals leave the show. Grace, yes. Grey's Anatomy is in season 16. Um, I am not still watching. Uh, you, I think, dip in and out sometimes? I... I dip in and out very, like, it's not even a per season or a per, you know, I'll dip in and out every three or four episodes. It's a, I'll dip in and out three or every, once every three or four seasons. So, so I don't really know what's going on, but I know enough. Well, I think two things about that. I think, uh, regardless of you and I and our viewing habits, somebody's watching because Grey's Anatomy is still in season 16. Grey's Anatomy is still the number one show on ABC. Uh, And also partly because there have been retained originals, uh, which is to say Ellen Pompeo is still on the show. Chandra Wilson is still on the show. I was going to say Dr. Bailey. Like, um, that's how I. <laughs> that's who she is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and until recently, Justin Chambers was yeah. still on the show. I'm not super sure about uh, the person I would have referred to as the chief. He's still there. Right. So there are enough sort of consistent individuals that the show still feels familiar to people. And, um, you know, I think, too, like a soap in a way, you know how the joke always was about a soap that you can go away for a year and come back and know exactly what's going on. It's not that I don't think things progress, but I think there are younger, uh, newer characters who came and went with a lot more, a lot less ceremony. Yeah. Right. But when the OGs leave. When the OGs leave. With the exception of Sandra Oh, that was the most, like civilized, you know, five steps above civilized. Well, so let's run it down. So the first to leave in season three is Isaiah Washington. And that was ugly. Terrible. Uh, He played Dr. Burke. Dr. Burke is super respected, but uh, Isaiah Washington was terrible. We all know those circumstances, right? Like, I think I could still say them word for word. Yeah. He's terrible. He's excused. I think that might even have been when we first saw Shonda Rhimes, like, in the press as herself mm-hmm. uh, was when she came out to sort of talk about what had been said and why it wasn't welcome. Yeah. Big moment. 
Uh, T.R. Knight, who played George, leaves two seasons later. Yep. Uh, and then Catherine Heigl uh, leaves one season after that. Yep. And, of course, she also was known to kind of run her mouth about the show and whether or not it was good enough to warrant a nomination. <laughs> Writers. Right? <laughs> Um, and then, of course, there were the, as you say, the non-dramatic uh, departures. For yeah. example, like one that doesn't get talked about a lot is Kate Walsh was Addison Montgomery, mm -hmm. and she was so beloved they gave her a spinoff. Yeah. Uh, then we're fairly calm until Patrick Dempsey leaves. Yep. At circa season 11, I believe. And that was slightly contentious. It was. That's your memory, right? Yes. It was contentious, and again, uh, to talk about Shonda, she didn't mince words about it either. She was like, yeah, I, first of all, killed him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's dead, and uh, uh, not sorry, in so many words. Yeah, I mean, things had been happening off screen, right? It was no longer a fun situation to have him on set. Whatever they argued about, they couldn't come to an agreement on. Yep. And so then he was done. And yes, he died. And we, I believe, saw him die or saw the evidence of people mourning him or whatever. Yeah. Right. And then um, there was, oh, we're talking OGs, right? Yeah. I mean, are you thinking about McSteamy? Like he's a semi-OG, I suppose. Yeah, I don't consider him. Right. Yeah. So, and then that brings us to now, yeah? That brings us to now. Yeah. When we're talking about the people who were on the show. Yeah. So for a long time, because even uh, Patrick Dempsey, that was five or six seasons ago, for a long time, it's been Ellen Pompeo and Justin Chambers holding it down right. as the two, uh, that's not fair. Uh, they are holding it down as the two original interns, that's as right. we said, Chandra Levy and uh, the chief, I'm sorry, sir, I'll look up your name, <laughs> um, are still there as well. But they were the two interns of the five who remained. That's right. Right. So- this is sudden. It's super sudden. Like when, for example, when Sandra O oh left, we uh, were that's given- That's we forgot. Right. Right? When Sandra O oh left, when Christina Yang left, it was lots of lead time. Yep. Um, well announced. Everybody was, you know, sad but respectful. And there was a really graceful send-off. And the final episode, like, I still feel like crying. Um, yeah. And I would say that even was the case for Patrick Dempsey, even though it was less, uh, lovey-dovey circumstances, we knew like all the headlines, McDreamy's last episode is coming tonight or whatever it is. There was sort of a, a, a known thing. And by the time it happened, all the parties involved had gritted their teeth and said, uh, what a wonderful contribution they were to each other. Right. Right. With Alex Karev, it came out of nowhere. Like I said, just a few weeks ago, and then there was, yeah, people were wondering what the fuck is going on. Right. And so what came out a few weeks ago was Justin Chambers has taped his final episode. Uh, the final episode that he appears on, I believe, appeared before Christmas. Uh, but yeah, in January it was, well, he has recorded his final episode. And we're like, recorded? Like, they're being really selective about the words. Right. And so, yes, the fi his final episode aired last week. Well, the final episode that he was in yeah, as a his person. character. Yes. Is, yes. Sorry. His, the final episode in which 
his character's storyline is resolved. Yes. <laughs> and I, I hope, I mean, I guess we're speaking like this because we want to talk about how they, quote, resolved it. So that's why we're being a little bit vague, but it is hilarious. Um, well, yeah, I think anyway. we should probably talk about Justin Chambers first. Yeah. So what we know about, so he, you know, the episode that I said was the last one where he appears, which aired before Christmas, loosely speaking, might have shot at the end of September, let's say. Okay. Um, And then he didn't, you know, and then we didn't hear the announcement of, oh, he's taped his final episode until uh, mid to end of January. Yeah. So what that says to me is that, A, there was a break taken Mm -hmm. that they hoped he might come back or that whatever was going on might be resolved. Right. Um, Because, of course, also the reason that you say, oh, Sandra O was so uh, above board and lovey-dovey is because I think we had heard, oh, Sandra O will do only X number of episodes in season 10 or 11, whichever it was, Right. It yeah. was like it was a it was nine. Right. Wasn't it nine? Yeah. Uh episodes or seasons? Seasons. Yeah. And that's something that somebody negotiates at the top of the season. The fact that we didn't hear anything about that. I mean, Justin Chambers is not the world's hugest star, but he is a huge star where Grey's Anatomy is concerned. If he had said, Oh, I'm only gonna do a partial season, something like that, we would have known. So yeah. it's not that, right? Yeah. Then, of course, um, of all the drama that's ever come out of Grey's Anatomy, of that of Shondaland, have you ever heard word one about Justin Chambers? No. Never. Ever. Not when things were going down with these people, mm-hmm. with those people. He never, like, he's not a big social media person. No. He never came out and said, I support this, or I love that, or I no, don't love No, he had no this. stink on him. Ever. Ever. Sandra O, 10 seasons. Right. On Grey's. So what that says to me, unfortunately, is that this is maybe the kind of situation where uh, Justin Chambers, for whatever reason, needed a break and that they said to him, listen, take a few weeks, take a couple months, see how you feel, and then we can talk. And I don't think, without getting into speculating about, you know, unfortunate situations, I don't think it's just boredom. Uh, that's not the vibe that I get. Right. Right? If you sign a contract for season 16, and we talked a while back about what Ellen Pompeo is now getting paid. Yeah. He's not Ellen Pompeo, but he's not doing too badly either. No. It's not to say that he's like, oh, he needs the money to complete the season, but there's a penalty to be paid if you don't come back. And he's been getting a pay hike every year for 16 seasons. I don't think it was a contract negotiation gone wrong. I don't think there was something he wanted that got pulled mid-season. I could be wrong. Feel free to tell me if if you're on the inside, but I don't think that's what this is. No, I don't either. It it's it's so abrupt without any lead up as you said. Lead up or any ripple. Mhm. You know when it's a bomb? Yep. You mean when something yeah. Dramatic happens. Like, and dr- we're talking dramatic, we're talking about in this business where a fight, a disagreement. A blow up. A blow up. 
I won't come out of my... A scandal. Yes. Whatever. There are reverberations. The fact that this is so, um, like, contained says to me, I know where you're going. Like, it's, it's something else that is actually not the thing that fits into any of those, um, any of those profiles. Right. Where I think probably everybody was happy to want to give him the time away. Yeah. And hoped that he would, you know, be able to feel better after his time away. I, I would think so. I, I, yeah. And the only reason that I specified about knowing exactly the words that were spoken about Isaiah Washington and what went down is because at this point, Shondaland is massive and they have a massive, uh, you know, network. If there had been anything dirty that was happening, there are any number of people who could have planted that information, who could have mm-hmm. told that story to the press. Yeah. Nobody did that. And to go back to the Patrick Dempsey example, I wouldn't say that people were crying when he left. It was a very, you know, Shonda's words at the time were, well, you didn't want to be around and yeah, we just did it. Like it was, it was, is it the right time, like is it the right time to use like unceremonious? Uh, Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it was sort of a, uh, you kind of gave a shrug when you quoted her and I think that's sort of what it, it was business. Let's put it that way. Right. And but there was an edge of a little good riddance. To a it. little bit, a little bit. Don't yeah. let the door hit you in the ass. Nothing about that is the same with Justin Chambers at all. No. And again, like when we're talking about Shondaland, as you said, Shonda Rhimes is powerful. Like she doesn't have to go out of her way to be nice to a Justin Chambers if he's pissed off her writers, if he's pissed off staff, if the crew's mad at him, if he was toxic on the set, if there was any of that kind of thing that usually fits into this kind of story. No, it's very quick and public usually with her. I'm remembering now Columbus Short Mm. had legal trouble on Scandal and same deal, right? We knew exactly what was up. Yeah. And it was like, we're sorry for him. We need him to sort out his shit. Thank you and goodbye. Yeah. Shonda does things without, when you know, she lets you know. Right. And so given that this situation has been what it is, where there aren't very many answers, yeah, I'm inclined to believe that probably the conversation about that shouldn't go any further. Let them deal with what they need to deal with. Right. But then there's the work. Right. Then there's the addressing it. Because, and this is what's amazing about series television, especially when something has been running for this long. Human beings are going to make choices that they are going to make about their own, you know, well-being and whatever, and power to them, right? But then you have the character, and people are really invested in the character as well as the actor. And, you know, when we say, oh, Sandra O oh says she's only going to do X number of episodes this season or somebody or so-and-so, you know that you have the opportunity to resolve that story, right? Yep. Sometimes sooner than others, I've been involved in situations where all of a sudden you have uh, two episodes maximum to get rid of somebody who's been a real established part of the team. And you're like, oh, what are we going to do? You do your best. Sometimes it's, it, sometimes it's better than others, but, you know, you do what you can. Nobody ever wants to be in that situation. But imagine having to tie off a character after 16 years. So you watch the episode and uh, tell us, you uh, tell us, you texted me immediately. 
tell us, uh, for those who don't know or who haven't been watching, sum it up for us in in two words, like a book report. Half of it I don't really know because I don't watch uh, not even week after week, but year after year. But Alex Karev is married mm-hmm. to, to Joe. That's right. And Alex Karev has left. Yep. And he is now with Izzy. And they are raising their twins. <laughs> yeah, so I did I did a little digging. So Izzy- I texted you. First yes. of all, I was like, ha ha ha, what the fuck? Alex Karev just left because he's now back together with Izzy and they're raising their twins. Oh my God. So Izzy is the Katherine Heigl character. As we talked about earlier, she left the show and I think nobody nobody really missed her maybe or she didn't miss the show, certainly not for a long time. Um, But the character, Izzy, left the show under, I think, fine circumstances. You know, fine to slightly maybe blemishy, uh, but that the issue was with the actress, not the character, is yeah. the point, right? Um, so then Alex Karev, yes, has like a moment of revelation, I suppose. And we find out through a series of letters, letters um, that he that he has decided to go off and uh, go and be with Izzy and raise the embryos that apparently she had with him. Yes. Abandon his wife. Now, they're all told in voiceover, these letters. Yes. And it's his voiceover. Is that right? Uh, Some of them are Meredith's. But some are Justin Chambers' voice. See, here's what's weird about... This is what I also wanted to talk to you about. I've only watched it once. Mm -hmm. And so... You know how they say memory is a weird thing? Yes. So I can hear his voice <laughs> reading some of the letters, but I also can hear Meredith's voice reading, reading some of the letters, but I don't trust my memory. And I don't know if that means, this is what I want to talk to you about today for show your work purposes and writing and show purposes, if that means they did a really good job. Uh, well, maybe, Yeah. Right? I watched it, like, from minute one to the end, but, and once, texted you, texted a couple of other people, the same thing, like, oh my God, what just happened? Went to bed, and in my memory now, I can hear Alex's voice, but I actually am not sure. Well, here's the thing that's interesting about that. So, um... Obviously, I wouldn't be surprised if you heard Meredith's voice, because... Uh, Meredith, Ellen Pompeo, has voiceover every episode, right? Right. You're conditioned to associate yes. her voice with of the course. show, yeah. right? Um, and then, again, I understand that, you know, this is something that where his story is concerned, you you might expect that you'd hear from him, but not having seen it, knowing that he wrote letters to five different people... I could also see how they could have had each of those people read their own letter. But also, this is what writing is, right? Because, yes, an actor, like, is the character and does the voice and whatnot, but the writers write the dialogue that they know that that character would say. This is what's really interesting about this episode. Like, I find it very, in some ways, I find it really fucking absurd, like, that Alex, like, busted out and ran back to Lizzie, uh, sorry, that Alex 
busted out and ran back to Izzy. Um, but on the other hand, it's it's really quite something in terms of a moment in television because there's so much going on and um, there's so much work here that I feel is is not going to be appreciated. Right. I mean, this is the thing. It's incredibly difficult not only to tie up this story, not only to find out a way. The reason I've been sort of belaboring this point about the letters is because they may not even have had him to do the voiceover of the letters. Does that make sense? Yep. And so you have to have his voice. Uh, Chief Weber is the person that we've been talking about uh, yes. uh, without knowing his name. <laughs> so uh, there are four letters, one each to Meredith, Joe, his wife, Bailey and Weber. Um, and then we have the Alex character mm -hmm. uh, detailing to each of them what he's gone to do and where he is and why. So you laughed at the comedy of this. Yeah. I, I just think that it was, you know, when you're watching on Thursday night and you go back into your Grey's Anatomy like muscle. Yeah. Because listen, I think for what, five seasons, we all watched. Everybody knew everything that was going e on. Right? We all watched and we all watched in time. It wasn't like I'm going to watch Grey's on Saturday. It was I'm going to watch Grey's on Thursday at the time that it airs. Well, Grey's Anatomy has been on for so long that like time shifting didn't really even exist yet. PVRs barely yeah. existed. Exactly. So we all watched at the same time. And it's amazing how you, when you, and this is why, like the show is a thing because you, when you watch, you go right back to the habit yep. of, of watching Grace. So you're like, it's at times really frustrating or you're like, are you kidding me? Are you serious? These people are behaving like this in a hospital. This is our, whatever. It's so soapy and mm -hmm. great. Of course. And so, real commitment to the yes. way that they speak yes. and the, the characters that they remain. Totally. Yeah. And so there's that familiarity. So on the one hand, I'm like, oh my God, this is the most grace thing to have happened, right? The most grace thing to happen on Grey's Anatomy is of course, Alex would you know, fuck off and run off to Izzy. In the sense of it's soapy, it's whatever, That's like right. long storylines never die, blah, blah, that's blah. That's right. Right. And then the other part of you kicks in or me and that's, okay, why did they make this choice? When they were in the room, the writers I mean, and they were breaking the story and they were making a decision, I'm imagining in my mind now you had, let's, oh, I'm going to throw out a number. You had five possible options. And they were like, he could do this, he could do this, he could do this. How about this? Oh, I really like this. And they all, I guess, decided to go with option, the option that we got. And why this one? Well, I'm so glad that you- Right? You, well, yeah. I'm so glad that you laid it out that way because I can tell you what those options would have been okay. and why they don't work. Let's do so um, we've talked about this in other contexts on other shows uh, where people have said, why did so-and-so have to die? I can't think of a great, great example right mm -hmm. now, mm -hmm. but why did such and such a beloved character have to die? Right. Often the answer is such and such a character was so wonderful, was so great 
that there's no, I, I actually think maybe I referenced this in relation to McDreamy. No. Okay. That's not where I was going. Go you, on. You're, you made this argument for Logan. Aha. Yes. Perfect example. Yes. Thank you. Um, in the Veronica Mars reboot, uh, we see Veronica and Logan together. Things are happening, whatever. And then at the end, Logan dies. It was very controversial. And the argument about why is that, well, if they broke up again, they could just come back together again. Mm -hmm. When two people are yep. so magnetic, then you understand that they would come back together, that nothing would keep them apart. If they've been yep. through this goddamn much, uh, in their case, by the way, uh, Logan's father tried to murder Veronica and her father. Um, if they've been through all that, right. then distance or deployment or whatever. Epic. is It's epic. Yes. Yes. <laughs> is not going to keep them apart. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. So now we come to this situation with uh, Dr. Karev, let's say. And a lot of people say, oh, he would never leave Joe, his wife. Uh, I feel like I'm being disrespectful to a fictional woman. <laughs> um <laughs> And saying, okay, but we know that we have to have him leave, right? If we're all in the writer's room right now, be in it with me. Yeah. We know he's got to leave. We yep. have to send him off because we don't know when, if ever, Justin is going to be back. Right. So he's got to go. Yeah. But unlike other shows, we can't kill him. You know why? A, we don't have him to see that death happen. Yeah. And B, Grey's Anatomy has literally made its meals on watching people die. We've seen people die on this show over and over again. I would say, what's the most iconic image of Grey's Anatomy in your head? I'm going to say Meredith and Derek. Uh-huh. The candles. Candle. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, Like they're on the, tra the trailer. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, that's that's a good one. Yeah, I have two others that I would say oh, something else just popped in. Well, uh, I think the number one image for a lot of people is Izzy in a prom dress lying on dead Denny. Yeah, right. Remember yeah. she like tried to kill him to save him or something yes. like that. Yes. Or another one is Meredith Grey is covered in spray because Kyle Chandler yes. has been holding a bomb that just I was blew just him gonna up. say. We've seen people on this show literally die in so many ways that there's no way you're going to buy, oh, Dr. Karev had a car accident off, off screen. Right. Right? It would yeah. be unsatisfying. It would be fake. It would not hold water. Make sense? Yep. So the easiest way to get rid of a character, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, but, you know, when you got to do what you got to do. And you can't just keep them off screen forever. I think the idea at the end of the last episode he appeared in was, oh, he's gone to help his mom. Mm -hmm. You can't keep them off screen forever and ever. It's also kind of playing with the audience. So now we know we have to send him off some way that is not a death. On another show, you could get away with a death, but not this show. So... What's the only thing that could keep a character you've known for 16 years? I mean, yeah, it's an hour a week, but 16 times 22 hours. At some point, like, people probably do know Alex Karev they better than... They become real. 
well, not just become real. I'm willing to bet a lot of people have like been spent less time with like relationships that started on Tinder. You know, it's 352 hours that you've spent with this person. People know who that character is and what they do. So then it becomes about extremes. Like you're laughing at the idea of, oh, he went off to to find Izzy, but it's sort of like, yeah, is that extreme? Is that like comical? Maybe kind of, but what is the one and only thing that could keep this person that we know and love away? And it's got to be the bigger, greater, more epic love, if such a thing exists. I love this inside the writer's room. I think it should be a regular feature. I I love that breakdown. I'm happy to discuss it because the thing about it is sometimes, not always, often the writer's room is exactly what you think it is and like, what's the craziest thing we can do? But when you're faced with a situation like this, it becomes math almost, you know? Or sometimes you have an actor who is only available for three or four episodes and it's like, well, what can we do to keep them alive in between when they're not available, to care about their stories, et cetera? How do we use their time? These are the kinds of things that you come up with and you go, and yeah, the enormous challenge. And I think the reason that the whole episode is constructed around hearing his thoughts and feelings is to kind of get you there, to get you to the place where you go, okay, I understand that this is a choice that Alex Karev could make, especially because he's been gone for a while. Does it make it satisfying for a viewer? I don't know. I think there are some people who are mad and I get that. But in the kind of intersection between art and commerce, in the sort of space between here's what we would do and here's the literal available tools that we have. Right. What else should they have done? I, listen, I watched, I texted you. I was like, this is bonkers. Right. I had the same conversation with three other people who were watching, some of whom didn't think it was bonkers and wept. Like they thought it was, and you know, the person who wept is one of the hardcore badasses who we both know, but has a soft spot for this show. Why are we protecting her? It's Kathleen. (laughs) She cries at the drop of a hat. It's not Kathleen. Oh. (laughs) The other one. Oh, all right. uh, The other one who watches regularly. Okay. Yeah. She's even tougher. Yes. But I will say getting ready for this episode to talk to you about it and thinking about it and like going over going over it again and again in my mind, it kind of gets better and better given that, again, that whole memory thing, like I'm not actually sure if I heard his voice or if I did hear his voice, but I'm also hearing Meredith's voice. Like I think that that's what happens when you create something that is so embedded in the culture. Mm-hmm. People remember it in their own way. Right. And I think that's a testament to this show. I think that's a really great point um, that the characters are so fully formed in your mind and those voices are so clear for you, even if you only visit them periodically, Yeah, that you hear those Alexisms uh, through the way that Justin Chambers would deliver them and yeah. also through Meredith delivering them, right? That they would be yes. authentic for him either way. Like- The thing that he says to Meredith, 
is in his letter, and I don't know if it's Meredith saying his words back to herself, like reading them to herself, or if he's saying it, because again, everything is so blurred for me, is he basically says to her, I know that Christina was your person, but when she left, you needed a person and I was your person. And I want you to know that, uh, like, I really appreciate you letting me be your person. And that whole idea of having a person is central to the theme of this show. So it's so familiar that those words themselves are like, oh, I know, I buy that someone would say it, Alex would say it, and I buy that Meredith would respond to it, and now I totally buy that I can't tell the line between who said it and who meant it and who did it and who wrote it. Well, and I could be about to ruin a really nice moment here, but I want to point out that this is, again, the beauty of art and commerce. Meredith needed a person, not because... Christina left, but because Sandra O oh left, right? Yeah. Then the writers have to do the work of constructing a relationship between Karev and Meredith Grey, which was there, but wasn't the relationship of people who are each other's person, no. if you will, right? And then they create it in a way that you believe it. They're there for each other mm-hmm. in a way that you go, oh yeah, you're right. Again, born of necessity, not necessarily born out of, oh, this is the story that we're going to tell, but you come to a place where you believe it and appreciate it because characters can, can contain multitudes because people change over a decade and a half. It's like, that's a really nice testament. I like that. Yeah. So anyway, anatomy of a writer's room. Yeah. And I mean, you know, not to be all like unzip and show me yours, but I do kind of defy people to come up with something else that would have felt, if not satisfying, then like there was closure. Because there's very few places you can take that, especially when your character is somebody who literally has shown that they would die for their work, that, you know, they are here forever, that they're somebody's person. It's got to be enormous. So I I tip my hat to these writers. I tip my hat to me for coming up with the title of this podcast, The Grey's Anatomy of the Writer's Room. Very nice. Great. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So last week we gave ourselves homework and we asked you to join us in doing the homework because Christy sent us a note. She'd listened to Conan's podcast. Um, what is it? Conan Needs a Friend? Yeah, Conan Needs a Friend. Um, and Ali Wong was on. And um, Christy said, this is like all show your work. Christy was right. We did the homework. Um, it is lots and lots of show your work. In And I will say it's show your work in 20 minutes. Like she was, she's on for about 20 minutes of the episode, but almost everything she says is, I mean, we could turn a whole episode into like, the six to 10 ideas that she explores during this podcast. Well, it's so interesting because 
Uh, I don't know. How much of Conan O'Brien's podcast had you listened to before? Maybe two episodes. Right. It's a... It's kind of the same format every time in that he banters with his assistants, then he has a guest on, ostensibly the friend. Yeah. And then he banters with his assistants some more. Or they do a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. In this case, though, it's one of the very few that I've heard where he specifies that he didn't know her. No. Before. But he wanted to meet her. Uh, Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is... I will admit to having, not fatigue exactly, but this format of fairly famous people having other fairly famous people on their podcast is, there's suddenly a very high bar to clear. Uh, And against all odds, I think Dak Shepard is doing the best job. He's very clear about doing his research when he doesn't know people. Conan, by contrast, has people on who in many cases are already his friends or they have bits together already or they talk about like when they go skiing together. So this was a bit of a break from format. And initially, I didn't love it so much because, yeah, to your point, he said he wanted to meet her, but I was like, I wish you'd had some more rapporting going on. Right. And then I started to change my mind. Me too. I started to change my mind because – It was clear that he did do the research. And I believe, and it's not that, you know, a lot of talk show hosts, they claim to do the research and you know that, like, (laughs) the producer slipped them the note. Yeah, that they read a one-page summary. Yeah. But he was able to relate to the research in a way that was um, clear to me that he, he did it himself. Yes. He's seen her work. He read the book. Um, and he was quite specific about, he was quite specific about, um, wanting to know more about those parts and why he wanted to know more about those parts because they were either the same experience that he had or completely different. And that's why he was curious. And that really to me is where it came alive. He spends a lot of time talking with, uh, comedians about the comedian's psyche. Uh, I would argue that one of the most affecting episodes, and I haven't heard them all, but he speaks with Stephen Colbert and they talk about uh, loss and uh, feeling like survivor's guilt and punishing themselves for those losses and that kind of thing. Uh, And a little of that comes up here. He talks about his very sort of austere upbringing and she says, I had the opposite and so forth. But it's clear that, yeah, he wants to understand how she operates. That's right. So um, what I think what Christy wrote to us initially was, you know, right off the top, they talk about writing a joke. Yes. And the writing of a joke and uh, Allie's, Allie's meticulous focus on choosing the right word and the right number of words and then going out to clubs and not using any bells and whistles to sell the joke, just having the joke land on its actual constructive merit, as in delivering it straight to see if the words themselves are funny. Right, that you're not dressing it up in any performance. That's right. And, I mean, I love that. I think a lot of comedians uh, would agree that they obsess over word choices and over exactly what's right and what's going to land the best. What I love is that she demonstrates that Mm -hmm. without making a big show of it, 
a few minutes later. Yes. So if you, I wonder if we're thinking of the same example. I think so. In you our mind melt. Remember it better. So uh, if you've listened, you remember the part where she's talking about how her dad at some point she says, "My dad decided that he, but that things like snaps and buttons and waistbands were overrated on right. pants, and he was going strictly for comfort." They all start laughing. Everybody knows this because everybody knows a dad like this. Yes. Right. And then she says, he is 100% into that Kirkland relaxed pant. Yeah. And to me, the word Kirkland is what sells it. Mm -hmm. That is, yeah. That is the brand that's sold at Costco. It's the house brand. Right? So it's a specific joke for people who've been to Costco. Or know people who go to Costco. That's right. Because Costco people are like CrossFit people or BTS fans. They will never shut up about Costco. But also, it is like the place all of our parents go. 100%. So you're nailing it on so many levels. And even for people who don't have parents like this at all, they know what it means to buy a Kirkland pant in a way that, you know, an Adidas pant or something doesn't land the same way, right? And if you had said Bob's discount pants, like the idea is the same, but it's not going to be as universal. So that to me was a really good example of specific word choice landing in exactly the right way. That's right. And she didn't have to sell it with physical comedy, with a certain delivery. It was no, she blows right past. Yeah. It, yes. And but they they erupt in laughter. Yes. So I I love that too. And I I do love that for her. I mean, you're right. Other comedians have talked about words and word choice, but it was I think it was really deliberate on her part to say you know, a lot of times when we think of stand-up comedy and stand-up comics, we do focus on the physicality or at least the dry delivery or the manic delivery, the shouty delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, and too little time is what I think she was saying is spent on the, 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 the hours that go into you just sitting with your pad of paper or in front of your laptop and literally just typing shit. Well, and I think that's when I said lots of comedians talk about the the word choice, I wasn't thinking about famous ones because you're right that they, this is, we talk often about people showing the work versus making it look easy. And uh, I was thinking about working comedians that I know, people who just get out there and do it, whose names you don't know, whose notebooks are full of, you know, the same joke 15 times scratched out with three different word choices debated in it with a million different alts, as they're called, for each word, each punchline, that is the work, you know? And she's right that, yeah, by the time you think about Eddie Murphy or, I don't know, uh, an Adam Sandler or somebody, you're hearing the voices that they do. I don't know whose voice that's supposed to be. <laughs> uh, or the or the big dramatic sort of pauses yeah. and not each word landing in a specific way. Yeah. And I also think that's why her book is so funny. You know, she writes. Yeah. It's specific words chosen at certain times lined up together. The order of a sentence. I love it. But yeah, she's almost scientific in that part. Um, And that's how we really begin. Yeah. And it's also why, you know, in her book, she refers a lot to being a, a staff writer on a TV show 
And that's why you hire comedians because they will work exhaustively not to have a funny situation or a funny kind of joke, but the precise joke that is going to land the precise right way. That's right. Then, you know, you said she was, uh, what was the word you said? Almost scientific? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If we continue that, uh, the next thing that landed for me is how uh, scientific she is or how rigorous she is about her stand-up schedule. Yes. So you and I, I think we're, I think people who've been listening to this podcast for long enough know that you and I love the fucking schedule. Like breaking down. Um, how are you spending your days? The how itinerary. Your yes. How many times are you doing this? That's right. So when, when she, and, and I think that she's one of us where she likes that shit too. She wants people to see it or to know it. She wants people to say, yes, I'm a stand-up. I have to go on tour. And when I go on tour, this is what it looks like. I have to get on a plane. I have to, when I'm on a plane and I'm with my children, because now she travels and tours with her two kids who are under five and her husband. So she breaks it down. She's like, we go on airplanes. I have to pack up the stroller. Mm -hmm. When I get off the airplane, I'm already tired. I know I have a show tomorrow, but I still have to pack up the stroller. I have to like, we have to get off the plane together. And then immediately it becomes relatable because how many of us have either been, me not, but traveling with your children. No matter what your fucking job is, when you're traveling with your kids and you've got that stroller, I see it. As a non-parent myself, every time on the plane, I can see the parents and all the goddamn gear you have to schlep. Well, I will uh, tell tales on you a little bit. Uh, once upon a time, early on when I had a child, you said to me, can I? Can you just tell me, is it really the hardest job in the world? Because, of course, that was a very popular phrase at the time. It's still popular, but whatever. Uh, and what I said, and I think I was sleepless, but what I said and what I hope I made clear is that the most important thing is it's relentless. No matter how famous you are, Ali Wong, or how many people you have helping you, not that she sounds like she has a lot, it's the job is never done. It is always going to be there, no matter how many or how few people clap for her or watch her Netflix special or whatever. The parenting job is is always going to be there needing to be completed. You're never finished. And I thought she did a really good job of expressing that part of it. Yes. That her kids could give a shit about what she's doing or how important she is. Yeah. They're like, are we or are we not going to the aquarium? Yeah. I thought that was great. And to be honest, it takes a woman. Like, you know, we're not supposed to talk about him anymore. I don't want to. But like, I don't think Louis C.K. was doing interviews where he was talking about like the the – the shit of like getting on an airplane, going to a dumpy motel where you have to like put a key between your fingers. That's what she said. Like at the beginning, when I'd go um, to these clubs around the country, I'd stay in shitholes. And seriously, they were so gross. Um, and as a woman, that's the other thing I had to think about is after I ended my my set at the club, I'd go into this like gross motel and I'd sleep with a key in between my fingers because I don't know. Because she had to be worried about her safety. That's right. Right. Well, interestingly, I... And she shares that in her book, too. She's quite clear about it. Yeah. Interestingly, what I thought was interesting was um, she and Conan talking about 
the way that they run their lives mm-hmm. and their children's lives. And, you know, he has been, again, he's been quite clear here and elsewhere that for entirely different reasons, his kids could give a shit what he does, right? Yeah. The difference is he goes and leaves them. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he's on the road for giant stretches. But when he does, he's made it clear that his partner has said, you leave your work at work. When you're here, we don't care about that stuff. You're here to be a parent. But he has a wife to do that. Yeah. Ali Wong doesn't have a wife. Ali Wong has an incredibly supportive partner who's also a business partner in the business. Yeah. But there's nobody else to take the kids' temperatures and, you know, like figure out if they're too big for their socks and whatnot, that that is something that she's doing. Don't email us and be like, oh, you're so naive. She for sure has a nanny. I'm sure she does. That's not the point. The point is that these are concerns that she continues to focus on even as she's focusing on her work. Yeah. And she's very clear about it. She was like, what's hardest is, you know, she doesn't say what's hardest is being up on that stage and like someone could yell at you, heckle you, which that sucks too. But her first her first thing in talking about what's hardest yeah. is the travel. Yep. Because you're always either... You're somewhere, you're not at home. Yeah. Even if you're with your family, they're not at home. Yes. If you're dragging them with you, there's logistics. If you're away from them, then you're away. Yeah, it's hard and it's endemic to her particular job. Yeah. And that conversation about being on the road and traveling and doing stand-up is connected to a different point that she makes related, which is that she can't stay away from the stage for very long. Mm-hmm. And she actually challenges Conan. Like he says, you know, but yeah, sometimes like you need a break just to recharge. And you know, what he was saying was like, get new material and, and keep it fresh. And she was like, well, no, actually I, there were three times that I was away from the stage. Um, you know, the two times she gave birth. Mm-hmm. And then there was one other time, oh, the movie. Yes. Um, uh, when she was promoting the movie last year, Always Be My Maybe, mm-hmm. it was like, she said it was for six weeks. And she said that those were the longest times. So that's about a month or a two, you know, when after she had her two C-sections and then six weeks promoting the movie, that's the longest stretch she's gone without going to a club and doing stand-up. And she said, and she was very clear about it. There was no um, ah, uh, nothing. She was like, I'm not confident enough to know that I can step away from the stage and my funny won't go away. Yeah, you know, that was the closest that she came, in my opinion, to being vulnerable. I believed her. I didn't feel like that was a cute phrase. Yep. I believed that she was like, if I stop doing this, I might not be funny anymore. Yeah. But I didn't, I'm not sure I loved that as a as a revelation. I don't mean like I criticize her. I yeah. meant I I worried for her a little bit. Yeah, I I would say that it made me I I would say I had feel complicated feelings about it. Number 1 because I think that that is first of all so real. Like at mm-hmm. this point you're Ali Wong, you're sitting across from Conan O'Brien who wanted to meet you. The movie was a hit. Everything's a hit. Um and still, how many of us like feel uh, this is going to disappear? I have felt that way. I think I, I sometimes I feel like that every day. Oh, absolutely. 
So it was real to me. It Yes, it was a worry to me because in the back of my mind, I was like, Allie, you know, sometimes you do need to take a break. You need to take a break and or there are things that may become unsustainable, you know, um, that there may be a place where it's where doing it for the sake of doing it isn't giving you the same returns anymore. I'm not taking issue with the practice. I think I've said on this podcast before that I've known uh, people who were trying to make it in comedy, who ultimately did make it in comedy, who had day jobs of all stripes and were still doing a couple of stand-ups a night, sometimes driving two hours to do 10 minutes on an open mic and then driving two hours back. Well, she says that she like, she used to do nine sets a night. I mean, that was nice for her. That's in a, that's a, in a big town where there's that many venues, you know what I mean? Yeah. Which I think is, is absolutely admirable and huge. I think though, you know, if that's how you work out your materials for whatever it is that you're writing during the day or whatever it is she's doing, because God knows she has lots of opportunities, you know, nobody quite says it because they joke about Netflix, but between the two specials and Always Be My Maybe, like she's got to be being well courted for lots of things right now. And I suspect turning a lot of things down. But the question will be, you know, when is touring, when is doing five open mics a night not rewarding anymore? Uh, or not giving you what what you did. Then again, maybe it's like going to the gym. What do I know? You know, maybe that's how she feels about it. But I was speculating, and I'm not going to pretend. Part of it was I was speculating because uh, she was talking about her children getting bigger and what it will mean to change things as they get bigger. I was going, yeah, there may come a day when that doesn't work the same way anymore. Yeah. And I always wonder what that means for people's identities. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? If you pride yourself on, oh, I work really hard, I do the thing, I do stand up five times a night, what when you can't anymore? Yeah. It's it's curious. It is. And that's gonna be and that's gonna be what's fun to watch about Ali Wong. Mm -hmm. She herself has laid the bricks of my kids are two and four right now. They're kind of I can uproot them without significant upheaval in that sense. Yeah. And she says, you know, I, I plan my tours around their school. That's right. But Not there that is going to be a time. Yeah. yeah. There is going to be a time when they, they have friends. They're going to want to be there for that party or that school trip or just day to day. Like they're, they're just going to want to hang with their friends and they're not going to want to be on the road with me. And I don't want to be on the road with them. Yeah. Or without them, sorry. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be on the road without them. She very clearly says that. I wouldn't want to be away from them. I would feel like I have to be close to them. So it might not be this way for very much longer. Well, even on a a sort of smaller pragmatic level, right now, you know, I don't know her life, but kids at that age go to bed pretty early. You can put them to bed and still slip out to some open mics. There will come a time when – that will mean, you know, going out to do those will mean that you're not around because they're awake earlier. They're more aware of that. So you're right. It will become interesting to see how she adapts because I don't think her work ethic is going to change. I don't think her like hunger to to do that and to feel out what people are 
not what people are thinking, because we'll get into why not that in a minute, but to sort of exercise her work in that way will will change and it'll be interesting. And I think that Ali Wong is still on the ascent. Oh, 100%. Right. She's 37. Mm-hmm. She's been this successful maybe for, let's call it two and a half years or so. Yeah. Baby Cobra came out in 2016. Yeah. she's That was around when she began to be a household name. Yeah. And I wouldn't say she was a household name right when Baby Cobra came out. Right? No, People no, People no. had to find it. So let's call that a year, year and a half. So at about like the 2017, 2018 mark, Mm -hmm. so about two and a half years is when she became, and then of course last summer with Always Be My Maybe, that has been like the biggest thing so far. And people are now going back after that movie to go watch the two specials, right? If they hadn't already. So anyway, so yeah, she's still on the climb. Um, And we're going to see, we're going to see how she manages that. And what she wants. I mean, that's part of it too. There are people, uh, maybe not tons because it's a rough lifestyle to be a stand-up, but there are people who want to be stand-ups and that's what they want to be. They don't want to have a network sitcom. They don't want to be, uh, you know, starring in four movies a year. What they want to do is tell jokes. And right now it sounds like that's her thing. Yeah, it does sound like that. The most interesting thing though to me is that Christy, who was quite smart in asking us to talk about this and for this to be our homework, uh, I don't know if, Christy, you could have known the other part of the Ali Wong interview that was the most important, what is becoming, I don't know what we said our thesis was at the beginning of the year. You will, just like you probably know what episode number this is. But uh, what our thesis is becoming on this show is that it is vitally important to find out how not to give a fuck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she comes right out with it and says, what I liked about it was that she expresses not giving a fuck as a privilege, not as like, oh, I learned how. She's quite open about, I never gave a fuck, or it was a gift given to me by by my family, by my parents. But she shows how important that is for her growth and for her to experiment with stuff and do stuff. And Conan, meanwhile, who is a much more famous person by any measure, a successful person, is like, yeah, I still don't have that down. And and I think that that not giving a fuck manifests itself in different ways. And, you know, you take from it what you relate to. For me, a lot of it has to do with how she describes her... Asian American identity, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where she said, I get why people um, weren't able to see themselves represented. Mm-hmm. And I understand where they're coming from, from that perspective, but that wasn't me. Mm-hmm. My parents were so proud of Asian art, so they exposed me to it. She has this funny line where she was like, and I grew up in San Francisco, which is like Wakanda for Asians, which right. is, was very funny. Um, and everybody laughed and, 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 and then she said, then I went to like UCLA, which is lots of Asians. She was like, so I, I don't have that thing. And then I took, she also took Asian American studies. Mm -hmm. So she said, I, I don't have that thing where, and it's, it's not like she was saying it as a way of being better than someone like me who I, I, that wasn't my experience in my part of North America growing up that way. But 
it shaped her in a way where you can see when you have confidence in your identity, when the world that's built around you and that you've been exposed to, and she had that privilege from her parents, wow, what you can do with it. There is like, she's almost in that respect walking around like a white male. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. Um, And I got something similar, but not quite the same from it. Uh, It is uh, walking around like a white male in the sense that she's like, I was never different. I was never other. Yeah. But what it sounded like to me was her saying, sorry, I'm not going to apologize for not feeling inferior as an Asian. I'm not going to apologize yeah. for not not being in that narrative of, oh, I never saw myself. You're I'm I'm sounding snottier than she did. She's not saying that no, that yeah. narrative doesn't exist. Yeah. Or that, you know, that that wasn't a real concern, but she's just saying I'm not putting myself in that same group. I'm not putting myself in that position and I'm not sorry about that. Uh, which is really kind of refreshing, you know? It is. Um, my sort of best takeaway, I think, from her uh, not giving a fuck actually reminded me of something that I have known, but that sort of I wanted to, I needed to hear again. And that is uh, Conan O'Brien, when he's talking to her, talks about a number of really, uh, like, amusing details from her book, but if you take them apart from Ali Wong's voice, they're not amusing. They're kind of tragic, right? She talks about, uh, oh, she lived with eight other people in New York. Right. And, uh, you know, she one of them was a 67-year-old landlady, right. and she was worried about her hearing her through the walls, and she had really terrible sex with lots of people. And this is the thing that I know we've talked about the idea of like, find your thing and and find your thing that makes you you. But I think it's important to remember that often not giving a fuck is knowing that the stories that are your pain are often what make you interesting to listen to. Mm -hmm. Um, I told a story last week that I've told several times, not on this podcast, but elsewhere in my life. This story kills every time I tell it, and I'm just going to tell you all right now, it involves having a very public urination accident. (laughs) Okay. It kills. Yeah. And the reason that it kills is that people kind of can't believe I'm telling it. Right. They can't believe I'm taking delight in it. Yeah. Um, And it makes me seem superhuman in their eyes because they think I couldn't tell a story about wetting my pants and live to tell the tale. Right. And I'm here to tell you that, of course, you can. Whatever your most embarrassing story is, whatever your most humiliating moment is, I'm not saying you have to bleed publicly, but if it's something that you feel has shaped you and you take control of it, as she clearly did with all those stories, then that becomes your superpower. Yeah. And not giving a fuck about what people think about the fact that I wet my pants when I was eight years old during a speech competition. There you go. You got mm-hmm. it all now. Um, gives me the power that not giving a fuck is supposed to give you. Does that make sense? It's when you're walking around totally. saying, this is my, this is my, like, here's my warts and all. Yeah. And you're not waiting for somebody else to find them. That's when you feel most powerful. 
And then if you're Allie and you're that naturally funny and you can write, then what happens is that the joke gets layered on with not embellishment, but like, you know, she's basically talking about how she was so broke. She lived in this place. The 80-year-old or 70-year-old landlady was across the hall. The walls were thin, so she couldn't use her vibrator. So she had to masturbate like the Amish. Again, That's no, funny, but it's word choice, right? Yes. It's not just I couldn't use my vibrator; I had to use my hand, which yeah. is funny-ish. Yeah, it's not just like uh, you know I had to masturbate like somebody who consider all the other discarded jokes, right. right? I had to masturbate like somebody with no voice box. I had right. to masturbate like this, that, and the other. Like the Amish is where she lands. That's right, and and the room erupts, right? Because it's such a perfect description and understanding. Correct. You can picture her like, and you don't, and that's what's funny. You can picture her, but you don't want to. You can picture her probably on a floor mattress, under covers, her hand is like down her pants. And I mean, to she's, me, <laughs> right? Yeah. To me, if we're picturing this, it's about utility of movement, right? <laughs> like it's, if you picture, I go the other way. I picture Ali Wong in like an Amish bedroom, which in my mind is a hybrid of a little house on the prairie bedroom. Everybody's sleeping in the same room in that yeah. version of things. She's in like an old fashioned bonnet cap, you know? <laughs> um, and it's about doing what you need to do with the least movement possible. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the point. It's super evocative. Not giving a fuck. Honestly, not giving a fuck is uh, the meditation practice we all should be working on because I kind of can't see a downside. I think that people think, oh, I'll become an asshole or I won't, you know, or, or I won't connect with people anymore, but that's not true. You have like 30, 40, however many years of social conditioning already built in. You're not going to start kicking puppies on the subway. So practice the art of truly finding out the ways in which you don't give a fuck and see what happens. Can we call that self-care? Is that a thing? Because if so, I might be better at it than I thought. Yeah, I, it is self-care. And that's probably why it's so hard. It's one thing to say it. Like we're, we're, we're here at, like episode after episode being like, hey, everybody, just try not to give a fuck. But the reason why we have to keep talking about it is because it's hard not to give a fuck. It is very hard. I'm not pretending it's not. I'm just saying that uh, it's something I'm better at practicing than taking a bath or whatever else we used to say was the, uh, you know, the accepted way of remembering your spirit. I, like, I wonder, I mean, and I think that that is, there are books now, like The Art of Not Giving a Fuck. I think there's a book called that. And I, I do think that, yeah, it is something ironically that needs to be worked on. I would really love to hear all your emails about the teeny tiny ways that you are not giving a fuck. Are you not tipping at the counter where you buy your coffee more than once a week because you just gave them a tip on Monday and not giving a fuck that way? Are you not volunteering for some stupid thing at somebody's school because you know it's going to be a pain in your ass? Are you like, tell us what it is that you are doing that is a tiny little way of saying, no, I'm just going to do what is right for me in this moment. I think I just had one a moment today where someone sent me a text uh -huh. and it was really annoying. And probably the quote right thing to do would be to write back using 
diplomatic language. And I didn't. You I was just, just sort like, of said, this is annoying. I, I Yeah, it was like, and why are you asking me this? And, you know, that takes a special power because an annoying text sent arrives all at once like a bomb. It's not like when somebody annoys you in a conversation where they're sort yeah. of working up to it. It's just all the way right there. Yeah. Yeah, I applaud that. Just knowing that you have the ability to be like, no, not going to do this. Yeah, yeah, good for you. Not going to do this. Good. So let us know about you're not giving a fuck, uh, why it's hard for you. Absolutely why it's hard or the places where you find yourself getting tripped up. Um, let us know also stories you've read about other people not giving a fuck or if there is a celebrity work not giving a fuck angle that you want to pursue, give us a, a, a suggestion about that too, because Christy's suggestion about Ali Wong obviously made its way into this um, episode, and clearly we can't get enough of Ali Wong not giving a fuck. Keep us posted on your thoughts on the podcast, on what we've been talking about, on what you're watching now that everybody's staying inside because of, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the entertainment life of COVID-19. Oh, as if Netflix could not get any more dominant. Uh, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Leave comments and reviews. We'll be back next week. Bye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.